Hello and welcome to another Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are for students and practitioners alike to dip into a series of professional and policy issues in order to develop a broader understanding of how architecture and the construction industry works or how maybe it should work, uh, but often doesn't. Today we're talking to Peter Allathorne, the principal of the Allathorne Consultancy, which provides RIBA client advisor services and expert opinion for dispute resolution. He's Got a long history. He's graduated from the Architectural Association in 1976, has worked with, amongst others, Richard Rogers, Renzo Piano, DGW, and was a vice president of Gensler and HOK. He originally contributed to the first edition of the AJ Office Handbook and is now, amongst other things, an RIBA accredited client advisor, which is the subject of this podcast, where we hope to explore his understanding of the needs for clients to have knowledge and experience on their roles and responsibilities and vice versa. What should architects know about the client's requirements? So let's start, Peter. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Uh, let's start by finding out a little bit about you, where you studied and effectively how you got to where you are now. Well, Austin, thank you for asking me to join you. I did my part one at Leicester and I was ambitious and saw that the interesting things in my future were in London. Preparing for my first year out, I sent my portfolio to Richard Rogers and at the same time applied to the AA. He exclaimed that he was going to interview me and so he stuffed me into his minivan, drove like one possessed to Bedford Square and the rest is history. He pushed me hard and I was given tremendous responsibilities unheard of today, dealing with clients and producing buildings. AA tutors such as Colin Fournier and Bernard Toomey were also highly influential. But post Boberg, the recession almost closed Richard's practice, and I moved to DGW via a spell at Eva Jurichner's Brighton Marina project. Frank Duffy at DGW was pioneering what I now see as the client advisor role, working with cutting edge clients such as IBM, DEC, and British Nuclear Fuels to really fully understand their corporate plans and provide working environments to support those goals. They developed the science and art of space planning, which has proven effective in the US. But concerningly, Frank told me many years afterwards that his term as president of the RIBA were the worst two years of his life. He received quantities of hate mail, accusing him in extremely unpleasant terms of not being an architect and being inappropriate to the role. Much later at Gensler, which by the way is a quite remarkable firm of architects with 50 offices and fee billings for 2021, of just over $1.3 billion, I was able to put my approach into practice for some interesting clients. My most significant project was the design for the new headquarters for GCHQ in Cheltenham. And all this was done under the constant scrutiny of the Treasury, the Public Accounts Committee, and the National Audit Office. You know, because it's quite interesting to find out that it's actually quite an old, it's got a quite a long history client advisor, where in some ways people think it's kind of quite a new uh, invention, but how does that compare to a project manager? How does it compare to a traditional role of an architect? Why do we need a client advisor? Well, Austin, that's the key question, because architects have always defined their own roles and the types of clients they strive to work for. Our profession's always been a, a kind of rich tapestry of varying talents, experiences and aspirations, with a common thread of designing environments for clients. So looking at the whole profession over its recent history, in so many instances, we've left dangling the roles of project manager, principal designer, space planner, design manager, and client manager. And other professions have been keen to grab these dangling threads or even form new sub-professions. 
So to continue this analogy, our own profession of architecture is slowly unraveling. How many project managers advise their clients to avoid the apparent risks with architects by procuring their projects via design and build routes? And then the uh, employer's agent, I'm only asking you just a simple kind of definitional clarification here because there are many students and, and young architects kind of get uh, yeah, confused yeah. about it. So uh, contract administrator, employer's agent, what, what's the difference? Clients and even architects and constructors confuse these two roles. A contract administrator is usually empowered to act once the design bid build contract form is initiated. The contract administrator acts in a quasi-judicial role to fairly administer the terms of the contract, acting impartially without fear or favour to both parties. The contract administer, administrator administers the terms of the building contract and without going into interminable detail, administers change control, issues certificates, chairs progress meetings, agrees schedules of defects, and pursues contractual agreements and payments. However, an employer's agent manages the delivery of a design and build contract and can be appointed before the contract is signed. The role includes securing applications, consent, instructions, notices, requests, and statements. The contractor is responsible for the design of the building. The employer's agent can provide unbiased professional advice during the design and construction of the project. The employer's agent is related to DMB contracts, and typically architects are appointed by the client to generate conceptual and outline designs, gain planning consent, produce an outline spec, with the architects then pass to the contractor for a design build package completion. In this way, the client believes it's escaped the various risks inherent in employing an architect disconnected to the builder, with only a single entity to pay and monitor at the technically risky detailed design of builds phases. This could be described as a fool's paradise because the client then loses any professional guardian and is at the mercy of Mr. Builder. So wiser birds using DNB retain the services of an architect from the novated practice to report to them on what's happening out of the client's sight. A client advisor working at the very start would advise the client on what form of procurement to use, whether that's a design bid build, management form of contracting, DNB, whatever. Um, so a client advisor would be there at the beginning in any event. Just as an aside, do you call it design bid build? Okay. You know, conventional, yeah, conventional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just thought it was a, a faintly Americanized version. Obviously, there's traditional, which is, is becoming less traditional. Now. Traditional, yes, exactly right. Because it's a, well, you, you could now say that DMB is becoming traditional. Precisely. But, uh, yeah. um, no, because it's that, it's that <laughs> conflation between design, bid, build, and design yeah. and build. Yeah. Very often, very often, you get lost in in linguistic translation sometimes. Actually, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think we should use the word traditional, and then some people would bridle at that and say, "Well, we're not traditional here." Exactly. <laughs> maybe maybe we can make it traditional again. The, the yeah. glory days. You, I mean, you mentioned it uh, again about linguistic confusion. The client advisor, a CA, uh, does that often get abbreviated to CA, confusing it with contract administrator? Yes, and it can cause confusion. Uh, client advisor or contract administrator, well, thankfully, the initial CA have over time starting to settle to refer to the contract administrator. And that's that, that, that's the language that we would use anyway. So what, what does 
Well, right, let's back to first principles, really. What does a client advisor add to a project? Since many uh, are called upon to advise on financial matters or value for money, which I've read quite a lot about, uh, or overall planning and strategic brief, um, what, from a client's point of view, is it important for a client advisor to, to, to have? Uh, you know, is, is it like a, a, a business qualification? Is, is there more to it than that? Ideally, it would be very good for a client advisor to have been to a business school and a number of architects have done just that. However, many of these have left the profession because they've been tempted by the higher fees and um, better professional lives offered elsewhere. More's the pity. But referring back to the rich tapestry of our profession, there are those who are wired to thrive on dealing with the client's big picture, defining their objectives in relation to their resources. The client advisor will remaster internal and external expertise to examine business case and feasibility issues. So in some cases, the client advisor may not do that work themselves. They may actually advise on the engagement of, of, of specialists, again, acting as ringmaster. Um, they will identify exactly what the client's needs and wants are and advise on the opportunities available to realise these. And these exercises are done in some considerable detail. So the client advisor will then advise on the optimum professional team and both guard and guide the client every step of the way through the process of design and construction. And then in terms of the RIBA, the RIBA, obviously RIBA client advisor is what we're talking about here. Um, and the RIBA client advisor page on the website says, uh, quotes, when considering a, a construction project, the most important decisions are the ones made at the beginning. I mean, you can say that about anything, couldn't you? But uh, it does beg the question as to what the beginning means in terms of client advisory relationships. And it also begs the question, what is important? Mean? What's, what's an important decision? So anyway, do you want to fill any of that in? Uh, it's a well-known paradox that we architects almost give away the most valuable aspects of our work for clients. That is even, if you like, pre-stage zero, stages zero and one, and perhaps even two of the plan of work. These are the stages where we really add value. I think it pays to bear in mind that creative design takes up around 5% of our time on a typical project. And we tend to give away fees and influence to work on that 5%. The beginning of a project is when the client thinks, uh, I guess I need to do something involving real estate. The important decisions are related to identifying the client's true needs and wants, whether any of these are related to real estate or not. And if so, what and how much, who, how and when. So can I ask you, just again, as an aside, how do you get appointed? I mean, how, what's, is a client just looking for an advisor because they recognise that they have gaps in their knowledge and they want to have professional advice? So how does it work? Austin, you've actually hit the nail firmly on the head with a very large hammer. There are a number of clients who know about the species of client advisor and know that to get one, you go to the RIBA and go through the, uh, the, the, the information sheets and you find a shortlist of those that really on your wavelength and your project type and so on. But we are the um, most kept secret in the, in, the, in the overall profession. I have not seen one advertisement for client advisors. The RIBA hasn't spent a sue on that, which is a source of contention among a number of us. And so we are the most kept secret. You know, I was just thinking that maybe a few pounds well spent, we're putting in a small advertisement somewhere, um, just actually saying, hello, we exist and we do this. Do you find that many architects are offering this service? You know, you, once you're in with a client, you can then say, oh, by the way, you know, I, I, either I have a colleague or I can do it myself. <laughs> yes. yeah. I mean, it, it, if, the practice, if it's a large practice, 
there might just probably be an accredited client advisor. So, so there's no there's no conflict of interest in a in an internal client advisor while an architect is fulfilling the function of the architect, or is, well, should you should you know? If an architect's been appointed, then the client advisor is coming in partway through the movie, if you like. The ideal situation is where it's way before any professional, way before there's even a need to build established. It again comes back to the fact that we are not well known as a discipline. A client, an accredited client advisor, and actually, that is the phrase, the word accredited should always be used. The several topic areas, I mean, there's, there's more to this. Uh, I, I know I've just simplified this down into yeah. a, a couple of topic areas where yeah. the client advisors can help. So in terms of business planning, there's lots of conflicting agendas about, uh, you know, with construction projects, lots of conflict. Mm -hmm. It's not the most harmonious of relationships very often. So how do you, how do you navigate those? Right. The pathway depends on the client and the nature of the project, which could be anything from, say, the school, which is where all this started, to converting an office building to a residence. Residences. Each client in these two cases may range from a board of school governors to a property developer, where the advice given is related to the client's abilities as well as aspirations. Clients may have a standard feasibility and procurement process, or a client may want some original challenging thinking, taking from square one to completion. To deviate slightly, we used to be called client design advisors, and we were obligatory appointments for those local authorities wishing to take advantage of the Labour government's Building Schools for the Future programme. Unfortunately, that was scrapped, but is now inching back again. Mm -hmm. We sat with the client at authority and school levels and both guided and guarded them through every stage of the project, including holding design reviews, chairing project meetings, translating professional presentations, organising public consultations, the list is long and endless. So what about um, the developing the brief, which uh, in itself is a yeah. kind of conflicting term, but there's a strategic brief, there's a design brief. Yeah. Uh, what, what is it that we're talking about and how, how do you help in that process? Uh, Austin, it all depends on the client's needs. Client okay. advisors can produce both the strategic brief, the design brief in logical order. The strategic briefing process will involve high-level interviews and case study discussions to discover the medium and long-term goals of an organisation and the resources available, whereas the tactical design brief will involve interviews with line managers and staff to uncover their day-to-day -day working needs and seek a form of consensus as to what's required at the work group level. And then in terms of quality assurance, just again, how does that work? Because you, you are there representing in some ways, you're reflecting and advising the client as, yeah. the, best way, as the best way forward. So how, I mean, how do you tap into maybe their quality assurance conversations, but what do you add to the process? Taking quality assurance as the topic and not quality control. Yeah. From the client advisor's perspective, we would advise clients to not only consider those practices or those people that they employ, which includes constructors, to only consider those who have been certified as conforming to ISO 9000 and 9001, where that's appropriate. I don't think individual client advisors have ever been asked to achieve ISO accreditation, although if they belong to a larger practice, then that might be the case. It is important, it's not always possible, but it's certainly important that people who work on the projects for the client have ISO 9001. So what, what about things like post-occupancy evaluation then? Are you, are you involved in that? Very much so. Client advisors do this, and it's considered to be part and parcel of the whole package. Bear in mind that many clients require a time lapse between occupation and user consultation. This allows for their new environments and their users to settle down 
with any anxieties and more superficial problems to be dealt with before analysis. This work is important where the client's commissioning a number of structures and wishes to learn from what's effectively a prototype. And some are very nervous about what may be found. But if some clients initiate new ways of working, then they want to know that that is actually beneficial. Otherwise, they may have to resort to more traditional ways of working instead. And then in terms of uh, the, uh, I suppose, for many architects, the number one issue, but uh, you know, I, I've, I've put it in the middle just for effect, uh, sustainability. Uh, are you, again, it's one of those kind of things, isn't it, about cost versus benefit and sometimes the benefit is a much more of a moral or a social value than it is uh, economic so in terms of pushing environmental technologies for example again are you are you striving to do that or is that outside your brief no that's that's very much part of our, our stock in trade if we look at building one thing look at building regulations which is particularly part l conserving fuel and power and the new and I think rather risible in the face of high energy costs part, part O, which relates to overheating in buildings. Um, if we ever see that to be a miracle these days. Clients, uh, we obviously um, advise clients, and depending on the, if you almost use your terms, there's an index of morality. If they do want to achieve, let's say, a BREEAM excellent rating, then we look at the overall value that will achieve, um, taking into account their, 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 their wishes and organisation to achieve that from a, a corporate responsibility point of view. Clients may be unaware of the cost and other implications of going to BREM Excellence. Do you want to give us a clue as to what you mean by clients who are unaware of the cost of going to BREM Excellence? Do you have any kind of data or figures or just a, just a clue oh. as to what it might mean? Achieving BREAM excellent, it, um, there's a very cynical approach to that, and that is that you do things like uh, um, excellent bike storage facilities, um, which doesn't mean that you're actually doing wonders or creating almost, if you like, a, a, a sort of passive house building you know, on a large scale uh, with huge amounts of insulation, triple glazing, and heaven knows what else, and, and, and materials that um, have been produced in an environmentally conscious way. If you do it the proper way, then um, the cost can actually be quite significantly more. There's also a cost in running this too. So uh, there are complications in construction. I mean, buildings have to be much more airtight, for example. Achieving that with a standard contractor is not easy. So a specialist contractor has to be involved. If I keep talking, so the cost goes up. So. Clients may have, if you like, morally fueled ambitions to have a, let's say, a BREM excellent or even try and actually improve on that. Um, but when they hear about the cost of implications, then that is, the ambition is a little bit diluted. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, in some ways, that's no actual figures. But, uh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, we get the we get the picture, and it depends on the project, obviously. But uh, it kind of leads on to the next point, which is about oversight and your role on oversight as to what you know it's advice and oversight so how does that factor in um, it's a continuing task of seeing whether the brief in the widest sense is being met by the design team that the client's time cost and quality criteria are also being met it depends on the form of procurement uh, the advisor will certainly keep a weather eye on contract performance one of the roles of the client advisor is to conduct design reviews these happen on a regular basis, and that also includes updates on, on, on cost and complications. 
cost and, and, and if you like, risk assessment. So the design review is very important because that allows you to keep pretty close control on whether the client's brief overall visions, aspirations are being met. And you can actually, the things that we can actually see, and we can also gauge, gauge them with the client. It's also what's said after the meetings that's important when the design team's gone. I mean, there have been some very interesting things happen during uh, my work on the schools program, where on one occasion during the design review, I was trolled out of the meeting by the board of governors of a school, <laughs> taken to the head of the stair of a very steep staircase, and and asked how we could get rid of that design team because they couldn't bear the sight of them. Difficult, particularly as they were put forward by uh, a designer built contractor. I thought um, you were going to say that you were taken to the head of the stairs and uh, dangled over the edge of it. The, <laughs> yeah, there was implication that I couldn't actually advise on a way of getting rid of this team. Then, you know, I, I would be propelled downwards. So let me, let me move on since, we again, we're, we're moving in that direction in terms of value added. Uh, I mean, the value added that you bring or a client advisor brings. Just I'm making the notification that the RIBA on the, the same web page says, having an RIBA client advisor on board can help bring certainty and maximize the value of your investment. Very bold uh, mm. statements indeed, I would say. You can't bring, I mean, very few <laughs> of us can bring certainty in this day and age. Uh, so uh, again, how do, you, how do you read that? I think that statement by the RIBA causes a high degree of cringe. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a problem. It's like an architect warranting that a completed building is fit for purpose. We cannot bring certainty. But we can work closely with the client to identify risks and opportunities and shepherd them through the process. We identify those risks, we can manage those risks. Um, in which case, uh, next question is uh, about what issues do clients not know the most? What I mean is, what do you find is a recurring problem with clients? What was the American general said? Well, they, 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 they need to know what they don't know. Exactly. They need to yeah. know what they don't known, know. Known unknowns, yes. <laughs> um, it boils down to the unfamiliarity with the client with the designing production process, the plan of work, if you like. Clients are generally unfamiliar with the language and process of designing construction, and they're unfamiliar with the roles of members of the design team. There's confusion. Uh, they need to understand how things are done in the 21st century. Clients tend to be unaware of the complexity of buildings and are oblivious to the legislative and regulatory criteria that must be met. They're unfamiliar with digital design technologies and its benefits. And some are innocents abroad in their understanding of the risks inherent in any construction project. So many bring a time, a time expired folk experience of building to their project. For example, they've got no idea of the benefits and risks of various forms of procurement. That list is long. In terms of the um, the list, the client advisor's list, we've already had the conversation about the clients maybe finding it difficult or, or client advisors finding it difficult to get clients to know that you exist in the first place. But there is a list once they found that. Uh, how do they then go about working out who's the most appropriate choice? There are these kind of headings of people who are specialists in housing or, or yeah, retail, yeah. I mean, but, but how do you go about it? That's one, yeah, building types are one aspect, but the process of accreditation, first of all, is not a one-off, it's a continuous process. You're not given the lion stamp on your forehead and that's it for life. The process is repeated regularly. Coming back to the initial application, there's a, a structured application made to the RIBA, which describes the candidate's strategic work for clients and projects. Candidates have to convince the assessors 
and I'm one of them, uh, that they have credible ability and experience in five main topics. And these are shaping vision and aspiration, engaging stakeholders effectively, supporting process to deliver outcomes, facilitating value management, and preparing for use and in use. So completed applications are sent to the assessors who work in pairs, and we assess whether the candidates has reached the right level and quantity of experience that's important to be an effective client advisor. So many candidates fail because they present as a regular architect with little relevant strategic track record. Well, you just read out those uh, titles, uh, those um, topic headings, if you like, which uh, sounded as uh, detailed or as complicated as uh, you care to um, <laughs> interpret them. But when I when I went on the application for myself on the RBA list, it kind of gives you just this kind of almost like one, two pages saying write 200 words about your experience of each of the various RBA work stages to show how good you are. And I just right. wondered whether, I mean, you know, 200 words, really? Uh, and also competence, which is the buzzword yeah. of the moment, wasn't actually yeah. there either. So yeah. Yeah. what do you think? It's, I think we see it as a little bit of a test, actually, that you're given, as it were, a blank sheet of paper. It's what you do with it that, 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 that uh, is yeah. important. If you like, there's minimal steer from the RIBA. And there you are, blank sheet of paper. There you go. Uh, Convinced. Um, you, tell yourself. Absolutely. <laughs> So what about the, um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this. Where When I read it, it's, I thought it said you didn't have to be a member of the RBA to be an RBA client advisor. Uh, you do have to kind of pay money to kind of become a notional member, but it's not. Anyway, how does it, how does it work? How does it work? <laughs> yeah. and, how does, and more to the point, how does that kind of code of conduct, which applies to architects, apply to yourselves? Which is, which is a good point, because it was not always the case that you had to be an architect. In the beginning, um, the, the, there are a number of different disciplines. Following following the end of the Building Schools for the Future program, then there was a kind of reassessment. Well, the RIBA decided to, if you like, close ranks. I'm not quite sure I like that expression, but close ranks. Um, so client advisors now have to be architects, despite the RI's description saying that client advisor is usually an experienced architect or professional practitioner if appointed. Well, usually, I mean, it's obligatory. It has to be. I mean, you know, it's compulsory. So a client, a client advisor has to be an architect, which means that registered under ARB and subject to the ARB code of conduct. If you want to avoid being an RIBA member, you have to pay a fee, which doesn't give you RIBA membership. It just keeps you on the register of advisors. If you, if you are an RIBA member or want to be, then the RIBA code also applies. So you, you, get, the, you get both barrels as, as RIBA members do. So uh, wouldn't it be sensible to have one code? <laughs> oh my God, we're opening up a hornet's nest there. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. So, we're, so we're, we're, effectively they, they comply with the ARB code of conduct anyway. As a basis, as, yeah, absolutely. The RIBA is the kind of... Uh, uh, the icing on the top. If I move on, uh, just to flip it around a bit, we've talked about you know your role with the with the client, etc. Yeah. But, um, but in terms of the architect or the design team per se, two things: what does the architect need in a good client in this in this relationship? Because we don't want yeah. to, we don't want to pretend it's just a one way stream. And the second thing is is since you talk about post occupancy evaluation, do you stand in the design team at all in terms of CDM regulations, oh, right. or are you outside all that? 
The client advisor is not part of the design team. He's outside that. He's embedded with the client. The client advisor is not an agent of the client, so the client makes all the decisions. Always guarded and guided by the client advisor. A good client is able to make structured and clear decisions based on evidence and advice. The client will listen carefully to facts and advice, is politically aware of the internal politics of their organisation, and is aware of the time, cost, quality and flexibility pyramid. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, not been tested in court. But the client advisor is not in a design role and has, if you like, advisor status to a client. So that function occupies the same status as, for example, the client's lawyer or management consultant. So in CDM, the client advisor will tell the client what his duties are and will make sure that those duties are being fulfilled won't actually be the principal designer. It can't be the principal designer, even if the client wants it. But, but um, do, you, do, you, do you have a role as a designer, per se, especially since no, you said no, you... No, but in terms no, of not design... under CDM, no. Not under CDM, no, no. Not, not, not where CDM would apply. So how might that work with the um, design reviews you were talking about? Do you, how do you phrase it such that you're not involved in influencing or developing the, the design? But this is a very good point, because there's the designer of record and then there's, um, there's the client advisor who is basically speaking from the client's platform and translating the client's asked for a golden dome on the top of his building and you put a silver one on, uh, what do you propose to do about it? Now, would that excite CDM? <laughs> well, um, so, I'm sure somewhere down the line there's a, a lawyer on the phone as we speak. That's the, that's the horror, that's the terror. Um, <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, well uh, speaking in, in those terms, um, my next question is a bit rude, but uh, but you can talk about it generically, uh, about what kind of fees a client advisor might attract. I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> he said the fingers crossed behind his back. Um, we expect fees that are a level commensurate with those of, say, management consultants. As I've said before, too many architects tend to give away or under-fee early-stage work loss leaders, if you will, in order to try and secure the actual design element of the project. So um, we expect the fees commensurate with providing the maximum value in the project. Do you have a, do you feel compelled? Is there pressure on you as well to maybe, or, or aren't there that many client advisors to compete with that you've got a fairly open market? It's funny you say that, but we're a very small group. I mean, it's about 150. I think that's probably slightly over, overstretching it. We tend to get about, I don't know, what's the maximum number we've come across six or seven applications in an application season, early season. So there aren't exactly queues of folks at the door. We're quite good at being able to command fee levels that standard architects could not command because clients aren't used to paying architects on an hourly rate basis. But client advisors, we've got a different label. Okay, good, good, good. Don't give away too many secrets. No, the final question, I suppose, is, is again develops from that uh, answer, which is, and, and it's very rude of me to ask, but is this a job? You know, like architects uh, bemoan, you know, the halcyon days, which I don't believe ever really existed, but you know, when they ran everything and everybody kind of came to them looking for advice. But is this a job, a client advisor, a job that an architect should be doing as part of the architect's role? Or is it a, or is it a completely specialist thing altogether? I mean, architects used to do it, and it's all fallen away. 
But these are extremely pertinent questions. These are the questions, these are the zeitgeist questions. Nature and clients abhor vacuums, and gone are the days when architects were keen on advising their clients across the entire spectrum from get-go to completion. We used to do it. We used to be the client's best friend. We used to we used to spend long weekends with them and, and spend dinner with them and marry their daughters and things. You know, Honeywood farm. But architects generally still have a reputation for having no grasp of time and cost and business acumen. And various skills that would have been seen as usual and expected of architects have been marginalised. Where we come in, we're stepping into a vacuum. As an example, how many architects will offer contract administrator or principal designer services? People are edging away from that. We've allowed the ignominy of design and build procurement to further corrode our authority and scope. So instead of being true professionals, commanders and leaders of the design team, that's champion our clients and answerable only to them, we're in danger of being regarded as artistes with all the strategic and heavyweight stuff being done by other disciplines. So question is, are we moving toward the continental uh, design atelier and bureau d'études split? Client advisors are clawing back a key service, a key service to clients and restoring that unique position of the architect as the client champion. Well, that's ending on a high, Peter, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> client's champion, you can't uh, say further than that. But uh, as a good client advisor uh, with time management skills, a plenty, that's it, time's up. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank uh, Peter Allathorne, who's the principal of Allathorne Consultancy. That's www.allathorne.com. Visit the site. Uh, this is um, very rare advertising for a client advisor. So uh, please take advantage and uh, take a look at his website. I'd also like to thank you too for listening in. If you want to find out more from us and listen to our archive, please search on SoundCloud or iTunes or Spotify or type in Professional Practice Podcasts to a good search engine. That's a lot. Thank you very much indeed. All the best. Goodbye.